Welcome to Shorts Season 2. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Here we are, Jen. Welcome back. Season two. We're here. Season two. I nearly fell off my chair when I was saying this is welcome to short season two. Can you believe that this little joke we made to each other for so many years about having a podcast has actually turned into us having a podcast? I know. I feel I feel very proud of us. I do too. <laughs> Thank you. And and we even have people who are listening to us besides our immediate family. I know. All of that time, we just thought it would be our mums. Shout yeah. out, though. Our mums are listening. Hi, yeah, mom. Annie. Thank you. Your work is much appreciated. Um, but yeah, we've, we've been able to share on Twitter. We made a Twitter. You and I tweet. Um, even though we're both elder millennials, it was still our first <laughs> Twitter experience. Um, I know. And I apologize for some of our tweets. I feel like I don't really understand some of these social media platforms. Fine. I would say, though, you know, writing Twitter where we've managed to land on is like the nicest place in the world. There's just we so many literary magazines, wonderful authors. All. And everyone's so supportive. They've been so lovely and listening to the podcast and giving feedback and sharing reviews. Also, the oh. independent podcast world has embraced So nice. Them. Beautiful. Yeah. So I feel like maybe we found the one niche area of Twitter that's nice. I think both of us were terrified of it just waiting to be um, trolled yeah just waiting, waiting to, to be, be trolled. trolled waiting to troll others and it turns out waiting to troll space. others <laughs> <laughs> um well let's knock on wood before one of us accidentally tweets something and gets canceled and you know <laughs> but so it's been a few months since we released season one jen because we've had some pretty exciting little moments for us it's been you know, hugely exciting it's yeah. been an incredible social media presence. <laughs> <laughs> yes, experts. You know, Carmen Maria Machado reposted our Instagram story about uh, our episode on Mary when you follow her. And I basically fell out of my chair. Kevin Jared Hossein posted about our episode on Passage. He listened to our episode about his story, which is just incredible, beautiful, and so, so grateful that he tuned yeah. in and then he and then he he tweeted us to tell us what he thought um so I mean yeah just lovely. yeah really getting to live out my childhood dreams of telling authors I love their work you know that's basically what this is for me that's it's what, a chance to talk to you and be like no I, I love your story it's amazing ah! you know <laughs> I'm gonna love listening to that back <laughs> we've already gone off the rails um <laughs> So what are we reading this week? So we're starting off season two uh, by reading Needs by Karen Brown, which was published in The Atlantic in August 2021. We've linked the story below in our show notes. Needs is the story of a young mother's murder in the summer of 1966 in Wyndham County, Connecticut, told through the perspective of her neighbor. The neighbor imagines Patty's thoughts and feelings on the day she dies in minute detail, including her goodbye to her suspected cheating husband, her interactions with her mother-in-law Doris, 
and her mindset as she walked through the mundane daily tasks of being a housewife. The tension builds through the story as we imagine who the killer could be. The narrator walks us through the aftermath, Patty's husband finding her body and the reaction of the narrator's husband to the gruesome crime. In the final scene, we discover that the narrator herself murdered Patty after discovering that Patty and her husband were having an illicit affair. (laughs) Just squeals. We love this story. Spoiler alert. Um, this is such, uh, this is such an interesting story and to have this kind of murder mystery and this twist at the end, um, really what, uh, what, what great work, Karen Brown. Oh yeah. Just a delight, but there's something quite satisfying about this version of events that shows this narrator who we trust throughout most of the story, at least I did. And then there's suddenly this twist at the end and everything kind of breaks open. It's very cleverly done. So the perspective of the neighbor is the only perspective we hear. So everything is told through this lens of her as a, as a witness. So you hear from her about her, her interactions with Patty, her friendship with her, what she can see through her kitchen window and, you know, accounts from the crime and the crime scene as well are kind of told as if they're witness statements or they're taken through, you know, from sort of facts from the police report. So you're, t- I just completely trusted her. This is the only person we know about. And she also is, she's very kind to Patty. I mean, she describes her as a kind of fragile, strong uh, friend and and you get the sense that she likes Patty. And then it's, so you're just, the, the ending completely blindsided me. But when I went back and read it for the second time, you can see all of these clues that the author puts in that you can sort of read the story in a, a completely different way when you know the twist. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things in a short story is a good surprise at the end and then being able to go back and see the expertly crafted details. Okay. Let's get into it. Should we start by talking about the title? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, Jen, you're all, we're always learning and growing. Um, and I think one of our big takeaways from season one was that we forgot to talk about the meaning of the story titles. In any in of every the episodes. single story. Thank you to all of the people who pointed that out. Yeah, so let's let's learn from our mistakes and start with that title. Tell me what you think. Needs. So firstly, this is a word that comes out a number of times through the story and especially right at the top. So um, the first lines of the story are, Patty's murder happened on a Tuesday afternoon in June, overcast and cool. You needed a sweater if you were going to work in the yard. And then a little bit later on, just in the next paragraph, we get Patty woke that morning to the needs of her family. So already you get this sense of there are different versions of needs that are coming out. So there's the kind of mundane, you need a sweater, but then you hear about this woman who is tending to the needs of her family. And as we go through the story, this idea of what 
women need or what the family needs or what you might need in order to perform a task at the home or in order to kill someone starts to come more and more. So this this idea of need and what does a woman need and what does a woman in this context need um, really take, like takes us through. And, you know, there's obviously the question of what happens if a woman's needs or a man's needs are not being met. Murder. <laughs> Just kidding. No, that's not an excuse for murder. But no, you're, I mean... I think that's the, I think what you said is, is right, Jen. And then there's also this idea of a woman's role in this world in 1966 um, and how she exists to fulfill the needs of her family. So we start off the story immediately with Patty's murder and the narrator is giving us these beautiful details about Wyndham County, Connecticut, milkweed and moths at screens, fields of corn and goldenrod and Queen Anne's lace. And she does this throughout the whole story. She's quite specific in detail in her description of both the natural world and also the house that she lives in and Patty lives in. And I think this is one of the reasons that I trust the narrator off the bat, because she's painting this picture for me that seems quite grounded in reality. You know, it's literally about Uh, the flora and fauna of Wyndham County. So we go from this very exact description of the area to the narrator immediately imagining Patty. You know, Patty woke that morning to the needs of her family, a husband heading off to work, a recently potty trained toddler. The radio played softly in the kitchen, W pop top 40. You could smell oranges. She stood at the sink and looked out the window into the backyard. She might have imagined the day her daughter would play there and how she would call her into supper through the screen. So you see our narrator describing a very vivid scene. You could smell oranges, what music she's listening to. And you, you know, when you come back to this, you're like, how does she know all of that? That's the thing that's so clever is that, that she starts out with the facts. So she grounds us in this Tuesday afternoon in June, this specific person, this, this crime that's happened. But this imagining is the thing that pulls the rug from us, that the, that the rereading, so reading the story for the second time. I think it's that idea, like that's where the mistrust is because she switches between fact, facts that she's witnessing or facts that are told and then this imagined reality that is actually the, the, the reality that we are living in throughout the story. And you get the sense, obviously, as you get to know what this narrator has done, that it's, it's this imagined world that she occupies as well. Yeah. And you think that, oh, the narrator, her life just must be so similar to Patty. That's how she's imagining it. Or that's what I thought at least. And this third paragraph, uh, we're getting set up with the tension between Patty and her, her own husband. He'd come in late last night and hadn't seen his daughter or his wife before they went to bed. Uh, He worked as an accountant with a manufacturing company a half hour's drive away and was often late. We can only guess what was said between them in these final moments. I mean, we're understanding that Patty's in an unhappy marriage, that obviously the narrator knows these things. But why does the narrator know that the husband always has coffee and toast? You know, it's just interesting. Exactly. It's like, is that a symbol, is that a sign of how close the the narrator and Patty's friendship is that she knows these minute details of the routine that Patty has 
you know, she witnessed that. Or again, are we just in this imagined world? I just, yeah. And the, 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 there's a line just after what you said that is so, so kind of telling of this, of this um, relationship, or at least of the neighbor's perspective on the relationship, which says, uh, talking about Patty, she says, did she harp or did nothing at all pass between them that morning but resentment and silence? I mean, if you're trying to build a picture of a of a of a marriage in turmoil, that idea that there is just nothing out there but resentment and silence is so powerful. Like I, you know, it's it's as visceral as when she says you can smell the oranges. Absolutely, yeah. And it's, I mean, you can kind of feel that you feel that tension in your chest of what that would ex- that would be like to exist in this silent, unhappy marriage. And that point you point out, Jen, there, I think is interesting because when I reread it, I think, is that really what Patty was feeling? Or is that our narrator's own monologue or internal dialogue that she's putting on Patty? Yeah. And right before that, she's musing again. And she said, did she remind him the things needed taken care of? The house he built for them wasn't entirely complete. There was the deck out back without a railing or stairs which is where Patty is found dead later. So she's giving us the murder scene already in the third paragraph. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so carefully crafted. So we get through this, this interaction between Patty and her husband. Um, and at the end of that interaction is where our narrator introduces us to this idea that Patty's a bit of an outcast right? Um, Patty wasn't like other wives, she says. What'd you make of that, Jen? Well, I think, again, it's, it's difficult when you know what kind of unfolds. She goes on to say uh, that people described Patty in a different way and sort of said, people said Patty was the nervous type, too thin, not very attractive, but I disagree. Um, and she talks about Patty in this quite quite kind of warm way. And so I just, again, you think, oh, she's just, you know, she's just gotten through this, this outer layer and she's discovered this sort of full woman underneath, you know, someone who's not like the other wives, someone who the neighbor has a connection with. But obviously what we find out is that Patty has been having an affair with the narrator's husband. So when she's describing... Patty wasn't like other wives. She's saying, she's not like me. She's this kind of, you know, beautiful other woman who's like, you know, taken my husband. She's not like the other wives. So we have these descriptions that the narrator is giving us of who Patty is, that she is obviously viewed as different. Um, You know, after her child was born, she left her husband. Um, for a little while before she came back. And we get these images of of how other people think womanhood should be and what that is to be a good woman. Yeah, there's that incredible line that says, back then it was more acceptable to be a softer woman. Softness was associated with friendliness. Yikes. Yeah, I mean... No, thank you. it's really interesting. If you think about that, I mean, obviously this story is set in the 1960s, but we're, we've, we've got an author who's writing this in 2021. And I just, 
I wonder how much that has shifted or changed in like today. Oh yeah. I mean, how often the, the friendliness that women are supposed to have the openness. I mean, I think that so much of that is still true. This idea of being a softer, more compliant woman who meets the needs of her family and puts other people's needs in front of her own is still widely accepted and widely pushed. Yeah. And if you're seen at all as a woman who is not that way, like Patty here, who has, you know, they say she's, she's not so soft because she has dark hair and she has cat eye stylish glasses. Like she's just not fitting into that mold. I think that still really rings true even today. And they also describe her as too thin. And I think, you know, again, like this value judgment that a woman who is thin is um, nervous, is cold, is not not a family kind of friendly person. And that someone who is um, softer, to use um, Brown's word, is more friendly, more open. And you just think these judgments, they've, they've shifted, the needle shifted on where you should be on that scale. But people are still looking objectively at women and saying, she is friendly. She is cold. She is nervous. She's not attractive. You know, it's, it's the value judgments of the neighborhood we get from this. Yeah. And the actual physicality of her softness, it's not just behavioral softness here. It's literally the softness of her body and uh, that, that can hold a child. I think that's really tied together. And we also in this scene meet Doris, who is her live-in mother-in-law and who we, I mean, I thought was the murderer for the majority of the story. What'd you make of Doris? So Doris, Doris lives upstairs and doesn't come down very much and comes down sometimes to ask if she's, if she's allowed to play with the children and, uh, Patty says, often would say, no, Patty obviously doesn't have a good relationship with Doris, or at least this is what we're told from the neighbor. And I mean, Doris is the mad woman in the attic that we have in, you know, countless stories. She's, she's someone who, you know, was, we are told that she, she like quote, went mad and ended up in a psychiatric hospital for doing like, behaving in a way that doesn't seem that outrageous when you read that section and then she's just kept upstairs in the house like not allowed to come down she has everything that she needs up there like she has a little kitchen and she has her crochet hook um and so you know her needs are met um it's absolutely bananas like to have and to have that stereotype to have that trope in the middle of this story like tells us so much about what the author is saying about how women are categorized and valued and kept in their in their stereotyped boxes kind of in literature but also in this time in this in the 1960s absolutely yeah a hundred percent and I love I love that you know, really Patty and Doris are not very, they're not nice to each other. They don't seem like necessarily kind people. That's not what this is about. Um, Because Doris is always antagonizing Patty. I mean, Doris is the one who's telling Patty, you know, he was out 
with that woman again last night, Doris might have said. I mean, also the narrator saying she might have said that. So actually, I don't, we don't know if we Doris was like that. I just figured that out. Um, but they don't get along. I mean, Patty says to our narrator, let him deal with his own mother. You know, he, she does not want to deal with Doris. They don't get along. Um, they're two women kept in this house. Yeah. This, and we never learned Patty's husband's name. He has no name. So for having these two women that are in his house running his life, we don't know anything about him. I love that. I love that he doesn't have a name. Uh, and the, the narrator's husband doesn't have a name either, right? And neither does yes. the narrator. So we are in this very constructed world. We are being absolutely led by the hand from the narrate by the narrator, obviously ultimately by the author, but by the narrator. She's telling us exactly what we should or shouldn't see. She doesn't give us a lot of latitude to understand what we should or shouldn't believe. She gives us these characters who you feel are fully fleshed out because you've learned quite a lot about Patty, you learn quite a lot about Doris, and you're just and but they're not they're not full women because this narrator's really, really unreliable. And they're in these kind of bizarre stereotyped boxes. So it's you're just you're just not on sure footing and you think that you are. And that is the genius of this of this story. Yes. Yeah. What it reminds me of, the kind of conscious unnaming of many of the people in this story, reminds me of in grad school, my friends and I, when someone would start dating someone new, we would give them a nickname and we wouldn't use their real name until <laughs> we felt that they'd, <laughs> we knew them well enough, they'd qualified. <laughs> so they had nicknames. And I feel like the narrator is doing that a little bit here. She's... She, by naming Doris and Patty, she's centering the story on these two women. But we find out in the end that actually, you know, this unnamed husband and our unnamed narrator were the cause of all of the drama and all of the, you know, hideous crimes. I just think it's a very interesting use. Yeah, that's true. I mean, me and my friends obviously never did that, Lizzie. We gave people full identities. And, uh... <laughs> Full respect from the jump. Full respect from the beginning. Um, Very British, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely have done that. Just can't name any can't name any nicknames here because yep. <laughs> I can't even finish that sentence. Moving on, moving on, moving forward, moving forward. Oh. So then Jen, we so we've talked a lot about like the the womanhood the tropes and there are more tropes to come but we also start to see this idea of drudgery and routine that exists in these women's lives you know we hear days with a young child are dependent on routine and the author details with us the schedule by which the narrator's own son would go play with patty's daughter at exactly what time these things happen and to me i was like oh my goodness you know I really respect people that can um, stay at home all day with children. And I did that with my niece when she was quite young, but it is hard. It is hard yeah. to be at home alone with children all the time. And you feel that in this story, you feel the, the daily, the way that days blend into each other 
in the way that routine is the function, but also the anchor of these women's lives. I love, I love the honesty of that as well. I think, I think we don't often give parents permission to say how hard it is to to be at home with a with a small child or small small children or with any a child of any age and i and i love the the way that this um that this author and this narrator talks about nap time and like i i don't have children but i have sisters and a brother who have children and i know i've seen how difficult it can be and i and i know how valuable that time is when the kid is sleeping in the middle of the day and how hard it is to transition when when nap time finishes and what so i don't get that you know 2 hours to myself or i don't get those 2 hours when it's just me and my son rather than me my son and my newborn who's taking all of my time and i this description of nap time is is honest and i don't think we hear it a lot and i'd just like to read it she says Nap time is the mainstay of daily life with a child. You are able in the middle of the afternoon to spend a whole guilt-free hour or more alone. The laundry can be folded into neat piles, the dishes done. I still, this is the narrator, I still sent Henry to his room for quiet time, even at nearly five years old, when he no longer napped. He was not allowed to leave his room until quiet time was over, a rule he always followed. Sometimes I admit I slipped out of the house and I went for walks in the woods, brief ones. I needed them for my sanity. I almost want to let those that writing linger there for a moment, uh, because this is where we learn more about our narrator than almost any other time. Yeah. Um, and the f- sentence that follows that, I think, struck both of us as well. Uh, because this is where we find out that she's she's walking, she's taking these walks for her sanity to get, she's taking this time every single day. Her son is locked in his room for quiet time so she can have a break. And we learned that she's pregnant. She's five months pregnant and feeling not ready for that. And there's that great line where she says, I felt like the astronauts they showed on television strapped into their upward facing seats awaiting the countdown. And that's how she's feeling about her upcoming new baby. And I think you start to get this sense that this is a woman who is under great strain and scared and sort of fractured with what's happening in her life. And you need that. You need that context because what's about to happen or what happens in nap time during that quiet time where she, that she needs for her sanity is that she's going to go and she's going to go and murder Patty. So when you, so initially you're there going, God, yes, get out of there, go for a walk in the woods, like be you. And you know, it's easy to say, oh my God, she shouldn't have left Henry upstairs on his own. But when you look at kind of what that means to her as a as a whole person, you think well, she she needed it, and then you realize because this this story is structured in such a clever way that what she needs for her sanity, the the thing she's doing for her sanity on that day, is killing the woman who's sleeping with her husband. 
Yeah, that's what she needs. That's what she needs to keep her family going. And I thought there was this great quote from the author um, in a profile piece that The Atlantic did when they published this. It's called Why We Need Terrifying Stories by Oliver Monday. And the quote is from the author. And she says, these mothers are bound by so many expectations, ones they place on themselves, ones placed on them by society or by their parents and spouses. And then they're further burdened by their own assessment of themselves against each other. Motherhood has always carried with it an elevated self selflessness. And yet both women in this story insist in very different ways on regaining control of their lives. I think it's so interesting, that idea of comparison, when you think about the line we were discussing where she says, Patty wasn't like other wives. And she's just there. She knows that her husband is sleeping with this woman who she sees every day, who she watches going about the same tasks that she's going about. She's just doing this. They've got this sort of mirrored routine through these two houses, which are the only houses anywhere nearby. And she can see everything that's happening in, in Patty's house. Of course, she's comparing herself to this woman. Yes. And the way that their lives are so controlled because they have small children in the house and they have this routine, but still it feels out of control to them because it, you know, Patty's unhappy in her marriage. Um, She tells our narrator that her husband forced himself on her. And back then there were no, there were no laws against marital rape. It didn't exist. And so Patty hates him. One of my favorite lines is after Patty's told our narrator that her husband raped her. And our narrator kind of very naively to me asked Patty, "Um, but don't you love him? I asked her. She stared at me and I thought I could see what she meant about Doris's look. I saw it happen to Patty just then. It was as if someone else had stepped in behind her eyes and was looking back at me. Love him, she said bitterly. Suddenly, I knew why people didn't like her. And I just love the idea that Patty disdains even the idea of loving her husband. Love him, she says bitterly. Oh, and it's just, our narrator is also, this is the second time she's referenced someone else stepping in and seeing like someone else stepping into your brain and looking out behind your eyes as if that's the way she felt when she was murdering Patty. I mean, yeah. What contentious relationship between these two women. It's so interesting, that idea that, because also Doris is described as someone who kind of can have this vacant look and this idea that some, like a woman detaching, has, it sort of becomes detached from her true self when she speaks something or acts in a way that isn't kind of, the way she should be acting. Like there's this idea of a kind of a true self or another self kind of coming out um, that is unrecognizable as woman because she says that she doesn't love her husband who has raped her after she gave birth to her, to her child. Which obviously, you know... Uh, it's just, it's just so, it's so clever that she does, that she, that she puts those words behind a sort of alternate self because she's still, she's still showing this idea that women should be a certain way. 
Yeah, our narrator uses Patty's language to show how she actually feels, Mm -hmm. to point out the differences between the two of them, but also as a, it seems to me, a reflection of herself. And, you know, our narrator doesn't really believe Patty necessarily that Doris is as bad as she says. You know, the narrator's like, well, I've talked to Doris a few times. She doesn't, she doesn't seem that bad. Because the reason that she doesn't seem that bad is because she's the kind of woman who you would ask to give you um, recipes. Oh, yeah, that's it. Yep. She says, Doris and I had chatted on the front lawn evenings, and she seemed level-headed and kind. Someone you could ask how to lift a mustard stain or when to search for morals in our woods. She baked us a blueberry pie that summer. So it's like... Those are the marker. Of course you can trust her. She is, she's, she knows about stains and she can cook pot like a pie. Mm -hmm. So this idea of kind of, it's this idea of trust and that shifting sand of like, you know, what kind of woman, and I keep doing air quotes as I'm talking to you, Lizzie, but this is a podcast. Um, But this kind of woman in quotes um, like which kind of woman can you trust? Like what kind of woman is safe and what kind of woman is dangerous? And what kind of woman is the true self and what kind of woman is this kind of lurking sort of mad person behind the eyes that means that people don't like you? It's fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Well, and our narrator says, you know, she's saying, well, I, I trust Doris. But right before that, she's imagining what Doris could have said to Patty. And she said, maybe Doris said, it's not my fault. He's a cheat. And it wasn't me who made him that way. That's the narr- It says that's the narrator imagining what Doris would say. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know what to make of that. But I wanted to point out that after that, sentence where Doris is base Doris is saying, you know, it's not my fault that my son is this this kind of weak minded man. The next paragraph starts with weak son, the windows open. And I just wanted to note that. I thought that was super interesting. We get this description of Doris's Doris describing her son as weak. And then the next start is weak son, the windows open. Oh back to our beautiful Wyndham County, Connecticut. Weak son. Oh, very good. I did not, I did not pick up on that. Yes. Um, Incredible. And again, she's shifting us back into kind of like facts. And I think what's really amazing, I mean, she goes on, she says, weak sun, the windows open, smell of cut wood from the unfinished deck and spray starch. The voices of television characters. She's, She's sort of building this, this world for us. And again, you kind of, when you realize that that you can't trust this narrator, those, those facts, those solid facts, you realize like they could be from a police report. They could be totally fictionalized. They could be, you know, it's kind of romanticized language. It could just be another thing she's kind of imagining. There's no, there's very little you can hold on to in this story. When you realize you can't trust the narrator, you can't trust any of it. Doris 
actually says to Patty, because Patty says this to our narrator, that Doris says she's prettier than you about the woman her husband's cheating on her with. Doris has said, I like her better. Um, I was surprised that Doris would say such a thing, but I couldn't tell Patty the woman was crazy if I'd spent so much time telling her she wasn't. I asked instead how she and her husband were getting along. He's left me alone, Patty said, thankfully. (laughs) I love Patty. Yeah, I mean, Patty is super relatable. Or the version of Patty that we get, she's pretty. She's literally relatable. I, I mean, literally wrote next to that line, Jen, that he's left me alone. Patty said, thankfully, I literally wrote relatable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes we just need a little space. Sometimes we just need to lock our problems or those we live with and care for into other rooms and go for a walk in the woods. Relatable. <laughs> relatable. Oh my gosh. So then... So then we get the actual murder scene as described by Patty's husband who finds her, you know, and then runs over to um, our narrator's house and she's pulling a casserole out of the oven. My goodness. I love the the way that these moments clash up against each other. You cannot escape the reality of the housewife's life in 1966 in this story Mm -hmm. someone's always pulling a casserole out of the oven (laughs) (laughs) they're ironing their shirts like they're just tending the house like these jobs are getting done these women are good Mm -hmm. at what they do very Um, good and that's sort of part of how obviously the the crime can take place and the narrator can get away with it anyway yeah yeah it's it's keeps her out of jail keeps her from anyone ever suspecting anything is that routine and the idea that she's a mother she could never no one ever even suspects her it seems because of her friendly open softness because of her casseroles and her ability to meet the idea of what a good woman is but also I think it points out the fragility of sanity because I deeply feel like if I would have had to be a housewife in the 1950s and 60s I would have also gone insane maybe not murdered my neighbor, but it does seem the repetitiveness, the drudgery, the expectations. I mean, yeah. no thank you. Hard pass on that. That story is told. You understand that these women cannot cope with, with that, with that, um, with that pressure and with that routine, but they are doing it, but they are just slowly like spiraling Yes. And she gives us that through use of another trope. But what she does is she tells the story of old Leatherman, who was maybe a real person who lived in the woods behind her house. Um, But he's this kind of old, creepy man in the forest who her grandmother had told her to not go in the forest, be afraid of old Leatherman. And I mean, this is literally a fairy tale. Like, this is a grim yeah. fairy tale, right? There's yeah. a there's a man living in a hut in the forest, like you know, and he's terrifying. And all yeah, the kids are scared of him, but they 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 kind of run up to him anyway. And yeah, it's, yeah, and he gets you know, she in the in a real way becomes old Leatherman. Like she is the scary thing that comes from the woods to kill Patty. It's not a man in the woods. 
it's this it's this neighbor. It's our narrator. But you know what else comes from the woods? Is her husband when he goes to um, have sex with Patty. That's how he gets there. That's how he gets there and thinks he's not being seen. It's because the husband is crossing oh. the woods and then and then climbing like the ladder by the house. Oh, so the woods from the woods comes bad things still. So yeah. her childhood, uh, you know, that fairy tale is coming real because that's you're right. Yeah, yeah, I totally didn't catch that, but that's where her husband is coming from. The evil, the evil from the forest. Ooh, and so then. We move from her imagining Patty's last hours to her husband finding the body, or Patty's husband finding her body, and then what happens next. And our narrator tells us exactly what she was doing. I'd been planting annuals in my front yard that afternoon, and later I had a direct view of Patty's house through my front window, and I saw nothing, no sign of forced entry. Why would she see any signs of fourth century number one from a window? That doesn't make any sense. But um, two, she has the view of Patty's house. What's interesting is that she goes back on herself. So she kind of mistrusts her own memory, even though we know it's a false memory. So after she says that, she says later in the story, later I admitted it was only after Patty was dead that my focus narrowed on her house. I was preoccupied that day. I might have never once looked out towards Patty's. It wasn't my habit to imagine what she was doing. Yeah, I wrote next to that, LOL, sure, okay. <laughs> so insightful. <laughs> um, it's like, it wasn't my habit. It wasn't my habit to imagine what she was doing, but I have just detailed for you, second by second, Patty's life. You know, with sound, smells, tastes. Come on, my gal. So You're starting just, but, to lose it. But I love that she's like, oh, if I say that I saw everything and I know everything, then it's not going to make sense, right? So if she's like, I yes. can see everything. And there's a point in the story where she tells us everything she can see. And she says she can see Patty's house, even from her kitchen table. So you know that she's that she's got this kind of, 360 view and you know she's obsessed about it because she's described this whole story again and again but it's like she she she's rewriting history by going oh I was preoccupied I probably didn't see anything I could have I could have missed anything I could have missed the car I could have missed somebody going into the house I could have missed a break-in yes and she's hiding behind the the sheen of what motherhood is. Oh, I was too busy with my motherly duties, meeting the needs of my families. I couldn't possibly have witnessed everything. I was just doing those things that a good housewife does. And I wasn't, and it works. Im- and I wasn't imagining and I wasn't spying. No, I don't have, no. I don't have desires. I don't dream. I don't get jealous. I'm just a nice woman in my house, yeah. planting annuals, locking my five-year-old in his room. It's so complicated the way that she paints this narrator because we know that this narrator has kind of true feelings and fears and pain. And because we know, you know, we've heard that description of her feeling like this kind of countdown to a, to a birth that she's not ready for. And we've, we know, obviously, the kind of hurt that she's experiencing through her husband's affair. 
Um, cause that, we'll, we'll come to that and talk about it in a minute, but it's, it's just these shifting, um, the way that she uses that, those tropes to further her own narrative or narratives, mm-hmm. like the layers of narrative that she builds is, yeah. is really interesting. Yeah. And I, and what Karen Brown is trying to make us as the reader think, you know, in that same interview, uh, with Oliver Monday, she says, a story as an imaginative imaginative construct allows us to experience fear in a way that is safe and controlled. We have all the power when we're reading. Maybe we need the stories to remind us of what we're capable of, to test our own boundaries and then be able to step away. So I feel like she's saying, it's not just the narrator here. In what ways has expectations, domesticity, femininity, these constructs, where have they pushed each of us to our edge? Ooh, I love that. And it's interesting when you realize that actually we do have this full picture of the narrator. We get this sort of very um, sort of glazed picture of Doris and Patty. We get like zero picture of the men, really. The facts that we get about the men is that they are cheating. We know their jobs. That's almost it. Yeah, what kind of prison is that in some ways for the men as well? You know, we focus rightly so, I think, in this story on the trail, uh, on the prison of these women's lives um, and the expectations that exist, but the men as well are just two dimensional. They have their own, I mean, tropes. A cheating husband who spends all his time at work in the 50s. Okay, there was Mad Men, the entire series about that. Yeah. <laughs> like, we are familiar with this, but it, it's interesting how the author furthers that trope by not even giving them names, barely giving them dialogue. The husband, does, Her husband doesn't speak till the very end of the story. Oh, should we talk about the ending? Yeah. So I guess she talks a little bit about the trial and who could have done it. Um, But then she starts a paragraph. And this is when I started to go, huh, the first time I read it was, my husband could never forget. He prayed at night that the image of Patty sprawled in the patchy grass would fade. But even now, years later, it has not. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, did he kill Patty? Yeah. Immediately assuming that the man killed her. Yeah. And then ending that paragraph with this image that her husband tells her. He says that um, after he's had a drink or two, he tells the narrator um, that how Doris came to the top of the stairs holding Debbie in her arms and called down to them, is she dead yet? Absolutely chilling. What? So then I'm like, oh, Doris did kill her. Is she dead yet? But she, Doris, I don't know, Jen, I don't know. What is Doris's role in this murder? I mean, she's got Debbie. I mean, she's got the daughter, right? So who knows? I mean, who knows, obviously, at, at, the, at that point of the story. Um, but whether she, whether she heard that something was going on and took the daughter you know, up into her flat, or maybe she already had the daughter up there, because we don't know. These sort of twisting narratives are all leading us to, like, not being able to trust any of what what we've been told. But if 
you know, if Patty didn't want her daughter to go and see Doris, why is the daughter up there anyway? Did I don't know. And, you know, Doris tells the police that she didn't know where Patty was, but she heard a loud thumping sound. So she must have at least heard Patty being killed and her disdain for her was enough to just let it happen. This crazy woman in the attic. Or if you hear someone being violently attacked and there's a small child in the house, is what you're doing hiding upstairs the right thing to do? Well, that's a much kinder yeah, that makes sense. That's a much kinder view just, of what could have happened. I'm like, maybe she hung Patty herself. No, no, clearly that's not what happened. But, but I mean, it's not what happened, but it, that line is, I mean, that is, ch- it's chilling. It's chilling. Is she dead yet? Is she dead yet? Ooh. Because also it's not like she ran downstairs when she heard that the, the noise had stopped to call the police, right? Yeah, no, or she- to go and help, to go and find no. out. No. So- She's, you know, it's not that she's innocent of all things. But yeah. then the way that this unfolds with the husband, because I, I was like you, I was oh. like, okay. Oh. So and also they're they're looking at these different who could be the who could be the killer. So you're there suddenly going, Oh, it could be the husband. I never considered. It could be the husband. The husband is the one who uh go he's like one of the first on the scene. Uh so yeah, it's interesting, but they lead you to say, you know, maybe it's Doris, um, and then you think maybe it's her husband, and the narrator is just there saying, no, you know, we both knew Doris, we ate her pie, took cuttings from her garden, so it's obviously not her. And then there's this line, Patty was stabbed with a fork, my husband says. The electrical cord, I say, it would have had to have been ripped out. So they start talking, they give you these details about the, the crime that we, we haven't sort of necessarily clocked before. Yeah. You know, her husband drinks bourbon and the details come out that they're talking about, you know, they found a ladder propped up where the steps would have been. So there's a ladder, there's a fork. Her husband says things like, resentment is a breeding ground for fury. My husband says, his eyes glassy. So she's not even saying it. She's not owning the resentment that must have been coursing through her. Her husband says it. Yeah. And he doesn't even suspect her, it doesn't seem. No. Idiot. And there's this section at the end, which is really, and we're only like, we're like 10 lines from the end when we actually realize what's happening. Or certainly I didn't clock it. I don't know if you clocked it, but I was like, who could it be? Who could it be? I just didn't think it was a narrator at all. And um, when this is this incredible, incredible section where she says, my husband was altered, his face gone white, his shoulders slumped, no longer the youthful athletic figure I'd seen those last few weeks slipping through the woods, scaling the ladder. I'd called my mother to pick up Henry. I didn't want to want him to witness what happened after. The police in and out of our house, the pots of coffee, the questions, the careful accounting of my day. So it's only in that section, that one sentence, that you go, hold on, that's the affair. The youthful athletic figure I'd seen those last few weeks slipping through the woods, scaling the ladder. Yes. And then... 
just after you realized she hasn't just put her kid in the his room for quiet time. That kid is not there. Yes, that kid is not. He cannot see anything. He cannot be a witness. And in that final explosive paragraph, you know, she says, the past remains bottomless, a dark lake from which we drink. I have tricked him into imagining himself, the murderer, out of spite. All these years blaming Doris, and he's only partly right. Patty's murder was a woman's crime. My God. Um, I, oh, it's so good. It's so good. Um, you know, the fork, the cord, the iron cord, not the toaster, a table fork first, all of these markings of domesticity too. These were the things at our daily disposal. We made our use of them as needed, need driving us to their use. Take a bow, Karen Brown. What incredible final passage. I mean, I was like, I finished this and just, excuse me? I I thought it was going to be what often happens in true crime stories or crime stories where you don't know who did it. That's the whole thing is like, oh, who could have killed this woman? But how satisfying. And it just flips your understanding of everything that you've read before it. I love an unreliable narrator. It's, yeah, it's, it's so powerful. I love it. Yeah. And I think what she does also well, besides giving us these details of the crime at the end, is she, her description of the landscape and what's around her changes. You know, at the first start of the story, it's all about the flowers and the smell of oranges. It's like very beautiful. And So along with these actual physical details of the crime that she begins weaving into this last conversation with her husband, the setting and the mood also changes because at the beginning of the story, you know, it's smelling of oranges. It's a cold and clear day. There's beautiful Queen Anne's lace. It's like lovely description. And then it's, it's different. Um, Suddenly they're those same things that were beautiful at the beginning become eerie. You know, they're on the, it's still summer. Um, They're out on their own deck. The fireflies bobble and dip drunk in the expanse of the backyard, sometimes appearing close enough to startle me. I warned my husband not to let one in the house. My grandmother used to say a firefly in the house meant someone was going to die. And then later the porch light draws beetles that ping against the screen door. I scrape my chair back and flip the light off and we blend into the shadows and become strangers. The tone, the feeling of the, of the place is different. I mean, yeah, Yeah. it's so good. So why do you think people should read this story? I think this story is a masterclass in how to write an unreliable narrator and how to take common literary tropes and elevate them and make them relevant and interesting and complex. Uh, I, I just, the use of details, the use of dialogue in this story and names is so carefully crafted 
that I just, I think it's, it's a wonderful story. It's a fascinating story, but it's just also for any writers, you can learn so much from how Karen Brown leaves us these breadcrumbs before the end. What about you, Jen? Why do you think we should read this story? I mean, I think the first reason is just because I loved it. I loved it. it it's, I, it, you're completely gripped by this mystery from the top. And the twist at the end is so clever. It's, it's a brilliant mystery story. And at the same time, it unpacks so much about the female experience that it's hard to believe that this is a short story. It feels so dense and there's so much to talk about. Um, and I just think people will love it. Read it. Yes, read it. So hopefully if you haven't read it before listening to this episode, we've convinced you. And you can find it in our show notes at shortsthepodcast.com. We'll have a link. Uh, and also you can just Google it. It's called Needs by Karen Brown. And it was published in The Atlantic in August, 2021. So thank you for reading with me, Jen. Thank you for reading with me, Lizzie. The next story is How to Marry an African President by Erica Sugo Anyadike on adastories.org. You can find the links to all the stories at shortsthepodcast.com or by following Shorts the Podcast on Instagram or Shorts the Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. See you next week.